Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. Welcome to On Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. I'm Colin Ellis. I'm Nam Kiwanuka. So, um, Colin, documentary, Yo. you remember the podcast, do you remember as if you forget, but the podcast that we did about the Oscars uh, for the best documentary to win. Um, I, I think I do. It was about a week ago. Yeah, about it? a week ago. I mean, in <laughs> pandemic times, a week seems like a month. But um, how do you feel about My Octopus Teacher winning the Oscar? Yeah, as I think about it, you know, I, I think it was um, probably the least deserving of the of the other nominees. You know, we talked about some really good films, and um, at the end of the day, it's it's about an octopus, <laughs> whereas yeah. you know, time was about you know justice for people who are locked behind bars, or mole agent was about you know the elderly and, and living alone in a retirement facility. That just it seems like a little strange that they would award a. Yes, about this speak, man's relationship with an octopus. Speak on it, Colin, because I, <laughs> I mean, and again, I don't want to sound self-serving because I really think Crip Camp should have um, received the Oscars. This is uh, about a revolution, and you're going to give the award to uh, a documentary about um, an octopus and the relationship this person uh, develops. And don't get me wrong; it's a beautifully, it's beautiful etc etc but uh a documentary like crip camp doesn't come around very often and um it's a learning opportunity for so many people um and there's so many threads in that documentary i just i could not i I couldn't understand it yeah just another baffling choice of that night's oscars yeah (laughs) it wasn't the only one speaking of awards nam did you not receive something recently? Oh, you put me on the spot. Um, well, I'm actually nominated for uh, an, uh, an award through RTNDA. I hope I got the acronym Yay. right. Yeah, I'm excited, but I'm going to be facing off with John uh, Michael McGrath, uh, local oh. well, fellow TVOR. But uh, I'm going to sweep the leg. No, I'm not going to sweep the leg. I'm really <laughs> happy that he's nominated as well. Um, but what documentary are we talking about today? We're looking at Someone Like Me, which explores a group of sponsors in Vancouver supporting an LGBTQ refugee from Uganda. I think a lot of people come into it thinking it's going to be some sort of big party and they're going to do some fundraising, they'll greet the person at the airport and that'll be it. But shit happens. Things fall apart. The group is divided and the way in which we support him is divided. It's a bunch of like well-to-do adults and like we can't get our shit together. I just want to be comfortable in my own skin, in what I own, and in what I have, in the friends I have. Freedom can really only be attained when you surround yourself with people and places where you feel safe. Let me tell you one thing. If you have everything but you don't have freedom, you'll never enjoy. Thank you. In case our listeners don't know, about 70 countries around the world have laws criminalizing same-sex relationships, and at least nine have laws that directly target transgender and gender non-conforming people. That's the backdrop that Drake, the young man who came to Canada in the dock, found himself when he was in Kenya. But when he arrives in Vancouver, he starts to face other challenges. Uh, this documentary, wow, um, a couple of things. Uh, it's very, my life is kind of similar, well, 
The parallels are that um, we came to Canada, my family, by a private sponsorship, and it was a group of people who brought us here. And in the documentary, a group of people come together to help Drake come uh, to Canada. Um, and coming from Uganda, I know about the um, the anti the so-called anti-gay laws. And I think sometimes people here think that it's not that big of a deal. Oh, it's a big deal. Um, a couple of years ago in Uganda, and I think in 2008, 2007, 2008, there was a paper that people read a lot. Um, it's a tabloid paper, kind of like the Inquirer. Um, and they outed a bunch of people in the paper, in the newspaper, in the capital city, Kampala. Can you imagine waking up and your name is in a paper and you might be in the closet and uh, your work now knows, your friends know, and they had a law where, you know, if your family knows that you're gay and your family doesn't uh, tell the authorities, your family can also face jail time. So um, it's very interesting because I think at the core of it, people really want to help other people, but then it's a huge um, you're becoming responsible for somebody and not just their physical well-being, but also their emotional uh, well-being. And when we were brought to Canada, my grand, there was a group of them, but only one person lasted, my granny. Mm. Um, so it, it's, I think it's, there are a lot of different themes in this documentary that um, I found that people can learn a lot from. And Drake, I mean, what a great name, right? <laughs> Coming to <laughs> yes, Canada. We get into that. We get into his, his, his story and his, his whole personality, the challenges facing Canada's system, and just how they pivoted when COVID-19 hit. Stay with us. So, Sean and Steve, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Big fan. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I want to know why a film about LGBTQ asylum seekers, first of all. I think it really started for us. Um, we, we had been talking with the, the film board about an idea. Uh, we were looking inward. We were really thinking about stories that were in the queer community and how to tell the story about the queer community as it exists now. Um, and that was kind of the, the basis point. Uh, it's 2015 when this is happening. We're looking around. Trump's coming into power. There's a lot of anti-immigrant, anti-refugee rhetoric that's being thrown around. Um, and on the, I think, on the other side, to combat that a little bit, there's people who are trying to support groups like Rainbow Refugee and trying, trying to help the opposite of what's being said on the other side. And we saw that it's typically 10 strangers that come together to help support somebody. And we thought it was a really interesting starting point for a story. Um, we started to research. We started to chat with Rainbow Refugee. We started to um, kind of go to different groups and talk to them about what was happening. And we realized that, yeah, this probably would be an interesting story to film. And for us, I mean, like Rainbow Refugee uh, has been operating in Vancouver for 20 years. We have seen so many of our friends and so many colleagues and acquaintances of ours do this, like join a, a sponsorship group to help resettle a, a LGBTQ newcomer uh, in Vancouver and across BC and other parts of Canada. It's just one of those things that you, we saw on our social media feed being like, okay, we like have seen this forever. And then once you sort of that whole like hate hate speech tide happened in 2015. It was like, let's look into this because these people are doing something so important and so interesting and so complicated. And it's all about community. And it just felt like a good starting place for a film. Yeah. Reboot Refugee Society. Can you just tell us a bit more about them, kind of their origins and what they do? 
the, yeah. they are run, uh, they were founded by Chris Morrissey and she is a former Catholic nun. <laughs> uh, she lived in, or she was in Chile during the Pinochet regime and uh, met her partner there and then immigrated to Canada. Uh, Chris was from Canada, but the partner wasn't. And then trying to get her partner uh, uh, permanent residency status was a nightmare. So Chris, you know, started doing advocacy and, uh, and then all these other people started contacting them, I believe, and it sort of just turned into this, how do we change the Canadian system to better support queer people and their partners? And we're at the end, like, this is 20 years into their process, and they are doing amazing work. Mm. Um, when you look around the world, there are uh, over 70, 70 countries where it is, uh, you will be imprisoned or perhaps killed for your sexuality or your gender orientation. It is like the story that we explore in our film is happening everywhere. And it is so important that people in our community and outside the queer community get involved and, and, and help. Yeah. It's, it's remarkable. How many countries again, uh, that, that criminalize homosexuality and, and, and how many, uh, uh, have the death penalty for them. It's, it's like in the, it's in the dozens, isn't it? For the death penalty. And then, yeah, like so over 70 where it is illegal, uh, to be queer. And it's like, you look at, I mean, now that we are so deep into this process, there's so many things we didn't know at the beginning of this, like Canada is the only country in the world with a refugee program that supports and helps queer people who are fleeing persecution in these countries. And then we're also one of the only countries in the world where private citizens like you and me and Steve, we could form a group and say, we're going to raise the money this person needs help. We're going to help them get here and build a new life. It is like, I mean, this is like a unique Canadian should be proud of this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm curious why Canada, uh, how we, how we end up starting something like this. I think it started uh, with the Vietnamese um, boat uh, people crisis. That's what I think what Chris Morrissey told us. So this, it's been a long evolution. It hasn't always been like this. Yeah. But I mean, if you, you would be surprised, um, you, you yourself and your listeners, how many people in your community have done this. It's not just a queer thing. There are people all across the country who do this for all sorts of refugees. Wasn't Jason Kenney at one point like an integral part of this? Yeah. Which is the strangest thing. <laughs> a lot of, like with Rainbow Refugee. Yeah, and I remember of, John Baird even was very strongly supportive of uh, bringing uh, LGBT refu refugees, I think from Iran especially, but... Uh, yeah, that was just, it came as a surprise to me learning that. And I, I want to talk more about Rainbow Refugee Society. So they have this, uh, I guess, uh, circle of support for, for refugees that, that they're, uh, I guess, going to sponsor. Uh, can you talk just a bit about how this works and, and uh, what, what, what is it they do to help the refugees or the newcomers, I guess I should say? Yeah, basically, people will contact uh, Rainbow Refugee and say, I'm interested in helping. How can I help? And they'll ask if you want to join a group. And then they will match you up with up to 10 other people. And from there, they will kind of give you guidance. They will tell you what you're about to embark in and on and how you're going to how you're going to do what you're about to do. And then they'll help guide the process. It's all like a volunteer organization. It is grassroots. It is just people who are coming together to try to help. Gotcha. And, you know, they're, they're choosing, you know, from, I guess, like, I don't know how many refugees or newcomers. And obviously it comes down to a, a choice, right? And I guess I wonder for them, how difficult was it for them to choose someone out of, you know, so many applicants, right? That's 
lots of interesting things with our film. I mean, A, we, sh we should say with the specific group, the group of 11 people who we feature who come together to sponsor Drake, the newcomer, um, they, in some cases, the people know each other beforehand. In, in this case, they didn't know each other at all. It was 11 yeah. strangers. They, and the nature of this, we wanted to stay true to the, the how Rainbow Refugee does this process. So it's, we didn't even, we didn't even know who it was going to be until two weeks before we started shooting. Um, we met a few of them, some of them we didn't. And that first meeting scene in the film that you see where they all come together as a group for the first time, we were already in that room with cameras. They walked in. That was the first time they all met each other. It is like, this is a, a true, you're watching this unfold on the character's terms as it's happening. Yeah. And then with the newcomer, um, we also didn't know that's not, it's, uh, randomly selected by the UN, the United Nations Human Rights Commission. So it is like, we didn't know where in the world this person was gonna come from, if it was gonna be Russia, if it was gonna be the Middle East, Indonesia, Brazil, the Caribbean. It's like, we didn't know what their uh, gender would be, what their sexual orientation would be. It is uh, like this whole process is like, you're watching this all unfold, surprise after surprise. We didn't know if they would film with us. We couldn't ask them for consent. Mm. This, is like, us, this is us just scrambling the whole time. No one does documentaries <laughs> like this. Like this is like madness. You didn't know anyone and you didn't know what you're gonna film. It is just, yeah. Did you kind of have a backup plan in case the person ended up not wanting to be in the film? Yeah, we had set it up so we were filming with all everybody in the group. So we were filming quite extensively around it. Um, and we were going to really focus on the, their lives and what was happening. And then their sponsorship was just kind of a part of it. Um, we were really lucky because Drake had already been doing podcasts and a lot of advocacy work in Nairobi. And when he saw what we were doing, it was pretty quick when he was like, yeah, I want to participate and help out. He, he said to us, he's like, if this can help someone like me back in Africa, then it's worth it. So it, it, we were pretty lucky. I love Drake. Uh, I have to know more about it. I think our audience needs to know more about him. Just tell us a little bit about <laughs> his background, where he's from and, and what's he like? You know, he's a, he's a really cool guy. Yeah, uh, he's from Uganda originally. Um, he left home at an early age and uh, made his way to Kenya. And yeah, I mean, he, he's young. He's full of life. <laughs> he has a, fa a fashion degree from when he was in Uganda before he left uh, to claim asylum uh, in Kenya. And he is like literally he's fun loving. He is like he is walks in the room and he is the center of attention everywhere he goes. <laughs> he is, <laughs> yeah. He has this really funny thing. We we always said that he kind of speaks in like Instagram quotes. He's always just like he has these like little things that he just keeps on saying and they stick with you forever because you just they they're in your brain. It's a he's he's Drake's awesome. <laughs> yeah, very much uh very much a Gen Zetter. I for guess. sure, for sure. <laughs> I'm so 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 glad. For you guys loving me. I know I've just, it's been a month now since I came into your life, but I'm happy that I'm in your life. Well, you know, I mean, he's obviously like a delight to be around, but, you know, he's coming from a country that I think, you know, has criminalized homosexuality and, and been very outspoken in its hostility towards uh, LGBT folks. So I'm just wondering what it was like for him to, I guess, come go from that to settling in Vancouver. And uh, also, you know, did he talk about his experiences back home that you're able to share? 
Um, he spoke a, a little bit. I, I think one of the things that really made me like understand what type of person he is is Drake said to us he's he's never been in the closet, so he's he's always been out. He's always been himself, and it is always just Drake is Drake. Um, and I found that like especially inspiring because like like it's crazy, like it's crazy to to, to have that sort of power. And then you also see in the film too. I mean, it's like it is. There's a line from Michael who uh, is with Rainbow Refugee where he just says a lot of people get into this thinking it's going to be like, oh, I get to meet a whole new group of people. We're going to be the best of friends. It's going to be a party. We're going to do all these fundraisers. It's fun, fun, fun. And then as you see in the film, I mean, Drake arrives and even all everyone's preconceived ideas of what this was going to be, it was not what they were expecting. And it actually caused a lot of conflict with the sponsors. And it is like it is a moment in the film. Uh, that surprised even us. It surprised me too, but I guess I wondered how much of it was, because uh, I thought maybe he would be dealing with some trauma, but it seems like he's, he's you know, he's a young guy and he wants to have some fun. And I think a lot of the people in the circle are a little bit older. Maybe they're a little more <laughs> like me at this age, you know, they want to just kind of settle down <laughs> at night, <laughs> not, not necessarily party. Uh, but yeah, could you talk just a bit about the conflicts that sort of erupted between uh, the circle and I guess Drake? I think this is something, I mean, we learned too, is like different cultures have different ways of celebrating things. So, I mean, he, like literally, if you've been living in the closet in a country where you cannot be yourself for 24 years and you're going to show up in a country like Canada where you can be openly queer, you can drink, you can smoke cannabis. If you, it's, This is all legal things. And why wouldn't you? You it's know? your new life. Yeah, you're gonna like you're gonna have some fun, right? Like this is this is new. So I I, I think that's I don't know. Like it was. I think when you go back to the group and you just think of the the different value systems that everybody bring to the, the conversation, and sometimes they're opposing, and sometimes there's conflict. Um, this was an opening for us too. It's like you sometimes you think of the queer community. Oh my god, everyone's so left wing and so accepting, and it's like one big monolithic progressive block of people. No, it's very different. There's a lot of layers within the queer community, and people feel very differently about different things. And it's also like we, like, to be honest, too, it's like they we had cameras there for that, right? Like it is a lot, an additional level of stress in an already stressful situation for everyone who's a bunch of volunteers and yeah yeah it's i mean it is like for anyone who's done group work and you're gonna do it with 12 people who are complete strangers it's like you know you're not gonna get along with everybody person (laughs) well and some people can't handle it right some people are just like nope not for me for sure yeah and i mean like respect right like you you came in and it didn't work for you it's fine but like in the end it's been a success drake is here now he's safe he's he's living his life and everything that they did to get him here is is valid and like i'm I'm proud that everybody did this Mm -hmm. well he he it's not all it's not all great for him though i mean when he arrives uh, he's dealing with racism for I i guess probably the first time in his life too i mean even though he's able to uh, uh, be open sexually, you know, uh, skin color prejudice is still something that would uh, be, I guess, new to him since he's coming from a country that was majority black, right? Um, How does he, I guess, handle that? How does he sort of, I guess, process all that? I don't know. It was, it, it was a moment in time when we were all, like, we were with him and it was... I don't know. It, it, was, it was really shitty to see. And it was shitty to see that this was the experience that he was having. And like all Steve and I, I granted, yes, we were making the film 
we spent a lot of time with Drake and all the subjects in this film outside of with no cameras. I mean, it's impossible not to become close to everyone for like we were filming continuously over 15 months. And for Drake, especially, it's like Steve and I just would show up. This is like really one of the things you can do, especially when someone is is going through trauma or like trying to start a new life and they need support. It's like show up without judgment create space for them to talk about their experiences, honor those experiences in their words. That's mm -hmm. what we try to do with Drake is what we try to do with everyone in this film. Yeah. But I'm so scared about my life and my skin and everything because it has happened to me and it was so... Couldn't sleep. Couldn't open my window at first. I was so scared to walk this direction. I was so scared to walk different direction. But um, I think the life we're living in, life has, ne like, life has never been fair. So it will eventually pass. Yeah. Well, I want to go back to Canada and just the fact that, you know, we're a country that, you know, is probably the only one that does specifically single or invite LGBTQ asylum seekers. And it strikes me as interesting that we're the only country that still does this and not other countries haven't try to adopt the same policy. I'm wondering what you think of that. I think there's, well, A, we wanted to do this movie um, knowing that with the National Film Board and how they distribute films and how they get it out in front of audiences, not just in Canada, but around the world. This is part of the reason why we wanted to do this because I think there's a lot that other countries can learn from what we're doing here. Mm -hmm. And I know the US has had a program similar to this on and off. It just depends who's president and what's happening in the country. And there are countries in Europe who do accept queer refugees, but it's not as targeted or as expansive as Canada. And we hear things from time to time from rainbow refugee, like Chile is studying our system and considering adopting something similar. So like change is coming mm -hmm. and it's just, it's, I'm glad it's coming from Canada and I hope, and it's not to say that our system is perfect either. I mean, the film does point that out and there's still, lots of room for improvement, but it is really helping queer people who are in, in danger. Danger. Yeah. Well, what do you think needs to change about our system? The the weird thing is talking to Kay, um, they were unsure of how the pandemic and not being able to do in-person hearings was going to affect the whole situation. And since they've all moved to online now, um, and because they've moved to online, they're actually able to do more hearings. So For immigration hearings, immigration Sorry. hearings. Yeah. So it's actually like increased the amount of people that can actually have access to this. Um, so th there, there are things that are changing, but I, f from our position, it's so complicated. I, I'm not even sure if I could give a, a response to how. I think like a broader, broader societal thing though, is like, I hope people watch this film and, definitely have a greater sense of empathy for asylum seekers, mm -hmm. for immigrants, for refugees. I mean, part of the change that you want to see in your country starts with everybody. If you say this program is of value, we should support it, fine tune it, make sure that it's the best that it can be. That starts with you and I. And That's a good answer. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I think you had a good answer too, Steve. <laughs> well, well, I would say I, I, you mentioned COVID a minute ago and, you know, obviously that has affected everyone working in the film industry and the documentary industry. I wonder how it affected, you know, the story that you were trying to make. 
Yeah, we were like, I mean, we had our whole goal was to set out to to film the life of these people in over the course of 12 months. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, six months into it, seven months into it, a, a pandemic happened. And we were like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? Um, and we are never going to finish the film. <laughs> never. <laughs> it's going to go on forever. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so we were really like, we were just throwing a lot of ideas back and forth and we were like, how do we do this? How do we just continue on filming? And the idea of getting an iPhone and delivering it to each of the subjects homes and giving them a list of questions and ideas of like scenes that they could shoot, um, came to us. So we started to do that and we would drop the phones off and pick it up after a week and it was always such this like it was like getting a treasure box right because you didn't know what was on the phone you start to go through the footage and it was like super cute and it's like super intimate footage they're framing themselves they're showing you exactly like they're building like putting glasses in the frame and and it's exactly like their view your drake story is good oh drake oh we like i mean we were so close to drake by then but you still have no idea like he most of the uh covid stuff that he filmed for us was done between like midnight and four in the morning and he is a total night owl. And that's when all of his friends are awake in Uganda. So that's like right. when he's oh, awake, okay. right? Like you, you just learn all of these small little things about these people. And you're like, this is so interesting. Well, I was just going to say, do you think it maybe gave them, um, they were more comfortable being themselves without a camera crew around? Like, you know, like obviously you grew close with them, but there's something different. I think when you have the ability to film yourself, maybe you feel like uh, you can share more. Well, that's exactly it, right? Like everybody is so used to phones. We record all of our lives. We take photos of everything. And so you you give them a phone and it just creates that level of intimacy that you can't get with a camera crew. Like, see, like, mm -hmm. I mean, there's stuff I wish we could have included in the film, but like Emily, uh, who's Kay, Kay's partner, walking around their house with the, uh, the cat in Emily's arms and she's just singing to the cat and serenading the cat. Like there's all these like <laughs> and Kay's chasing her around with the phone. Like there, there's so many good moments. Like it's priceless. <laughs> well, I, I have to ask how Drake's doing today. Drake's doing well. Uh, he's working, he's dating, he's living his life. Uh, he has, he, he's got kind of a frontline worker, I guess. So he was vaccinated fairly early. He's working in the downtown east side in Vancouver. Uh, um, in, for a, like, I'm not sure which branch of Atira, but mm -hmm. he's doing good community work and supporting the people down in the downtown east side. Mm -hmm. And it's, I mean, he came here wanting to pursue fashion and film and he is on his way following his dream right so yeah that's great did drake um <laughs> he came to the country with probably the most internationally famous drake on on the planet right? like, <laughs> did, did he ever kind of like did he know about drake back home i it was something that i just i was thinking i know it's silly to, to ask but i just that was something i was thinking about the whole time was he just he shares the name with the most famous guy named drake ever <laughs> in Canada. Yeah. No, he does. I mean, yeah, the, exactly. one of the things that completely surprised me, uh, and I like this is just like my own stereotypes with what I think a refugee is, is like when we were, when Drake had first come over, we're driving around with him in the city and we're all singing the same songs. Like he loves Sam Smith and he's just wailing in the back seat. And we all watch the, like we watch the same TV shows. So like it, you realize that the internet has just made us like much more closer than you even can begin to understand. And that he would be watching RuPaul's Drag Race with his friends. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, it's like the world is a smaller place nowadays. Yeah, for, for sure. sure. Do you think he'll ever uh, go back home? Uh, I'm not sure. 
I, I think he wants to. I know, like he says in the film that like he he loves Uganda and he'll always be Ugandan. Um, and I, I think that he probably has dreams to to go back. And yeah. Well, we have to wrap up our conversations, but is there anything uh, else you can tell us about uh, the work that you guys are doing? Is there any other projects that you're working on? Anything you'd like to plug? Sure, <laughs> I would love to. <laughs> uh, do you want to plug well, second? Do. And I'll say one thing you, about you the do film. it. You do it. One thing I, I know that we've been talking, and there's like another uh, emotional layer to the film that we just want to, you know, encourage people. This is like a serious issue, and it rightfully mm. so is a serious. And like a lot of our talk with you has been about the serious issues. This is about the queer community. What was important to Steve and I with this is like sort of the way that we process trauma is through humor. And you'll see this mm. in the, like our closeness with the subjects and being able to do this over 15 months is that they got so comfortable with us and so comfortable with the camera. There are, there is an, it, it is a serious film, but there is an undercurrent of humor that runs through everything. And this was important to us as filmmakers is to have, find that balance. So it is, you have some emotional mm-hmm. balance and balance yeah. and tension and yeah, yeah, for sure. And that's, that's what I want to say about this. So there are some laughs in this film. And Thank you, yeah. <laughs> your plug. Where are you uh, plug? I just said uh, we, we have a film, in, uh, another feature film uh, documentary in development right now, CBC Doc Channel. Um, and it is kind of tracing back the satanic panic uh, from where it is now and how it kind of exists in this crazy QAnon world uh, back to a... 1980s. So it's four decades. And the film is called Satan Wants You. So it'll be a little different than this one. Yeah. But we're looking forward. We're, we're hoping to close funding in summer and start shooting that in the fall uh, as long as everything I'm goes. I'm looking forward to watching that, yeah. It's Definitely fun let us know because I'd love to watch it, yeah. All right. Well, Sean and Steve, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having us. We really appreciate this it. This was so much fun. Thank you. And that's the podcast. Someone Like Me is playing at Hot Docs and will be streaming online in the future. And while you're here, why not give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend about us. It helps new listeners to find the show. You can follow me on Twitter at ColinEllis81. And you can follow me at NamShine, all one word. Thanks to producer and editor Matthew O'Mara, senior producer Katie O'Connor, production support coordinators Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hollowell, and executive producer Lori Few. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you at the next screening.